Well, hello there. I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome everyone to today's Aging Fearlessly program and Peter Quarry author, If I Were You, is in the studio today. And today, actually, I'm putting Peter on the couch. (laughs) Well, not really. But however, the tagline for Peter's book is a psychologist puts himself on the couch. Welcome, Peter. Hello. How are you, Karen? I'm great. And it's a pleasure to speak to you and for you to be able to shed some light on your book and the work that you are very well known for. Well, it's funny. I've done a a lot of stuff over my 45-year-plus career. Uh, I mean, I'm obviously a psychologist. Um, I started off uh, as a counsellor, and then I moved into the corporate education space just as that wave was starting in the late 70s. I used to run workshops and seminars. I then uh, started making corporate education videos, which were distributed in 20 countries around the world eventually, which is pretty cool. Um, I had a bit of a stint on TV. And so I guess, I guess writing a book was, was the sort of next logical step. And, um, the idea really came about for me because I was reading the work of a, an American psychotherapist called Victoria Howard. And mm-hmm. she, she talked about the fact that at a certain age, it's a really important thing to do what she called a life review, which is obviously to look back over the life that you've led so far and try to make some sense of it. And I'd, I'd also been reading um, about Jane Fonda, who interestingly also mentioned doing a life review in what she called the third act of life and that it mm. really helped her immensely. So I decided to, uh, to do a book about that. Well, actually, the third act of life, Jane Fonda, I listened to her TED Talk and I, I find it absolutely fascinating and it is a great way to actually break your life up and I'm definitely in the third act of life now. I've just recently turned 66 and and it's a good time to look back and reflect. Look, absolutely. I mean, I would suggest to anyone, say, over 50, certainly anyone over 60 like you and I are, that it's a great time because we've we've led a lot of our life, but we've still got a good chunk of it ahead of us. And there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of evidence that trying to make sense of your life really has a lot of psychological benefits. I mean, let's take a step back. A lot of people think about this in terms of writing a memoir or a journal. And, you know, a lot of people do that because they want to pass on the details or the history of their family to generations that are, that are coming. And I think that's a great thing to do. The problem with memoir writing usually is that it's purely descriptive in the mm. sense that it's, you know, chronicling, well, what's happened? You know, I got married, then I got this job, and then I moved here, and then I did this, and then I did that. And that's great. And we know that writing about the past, um, particularly if you've had traumas in the past, can actually help you to overcome um, some of the damage that, the, that those traumas cause. 
But what we also know, Karen, is that the people who seem to do best from that sort of writing use certain expressions and phrases over and over again. Phrases like, it now makes sense to me that, or Mm -hmm. reading what has happened in my life, I'm starting to join the dots and I've come to understand this about myself. In other words, the research shows that people who do best from writing about their life don't just describe what happened, they also analyse it. In other words, they dissect it, they try to make sense of it. And what I did in my book is, uh, I guess, give a method for how to write about your life, but not just describe it, also pull it apart and make sense of it. And what I, I then do in my book, as the title suggests, I demonstrate this technique by doing it on myself. Yeah, fascinating. And I think let's go back to memoirs a bit. I think some people tend to just put all the positives that have happened in their life, a bit like Facebook and, um, you know, Instagram, they're happy to post and talk about all the wonderful things in their life and they forget to actually include or they choose not to include the really hard times in their life. Look, I think you're absolutely right. I I reckon that there are a few reasons why people, you know, avoid. I mean, a lot of people don't know how to do this. I mean, they're kind of interested in the idea. They think about it, but they don't know how to talk about it. Others, as you rightly say, I think are fearful. In fact, it reminds me, I I was at the Williamstown Literary Festival being interviewed about my book uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, I got a fascinating question from a guy in the audience who was, you know, about our age. And he said to me, um, look, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear what you're talking about, Peter. I, I really am I'm thinking about doing exactly what you're talking about, writing about my childhood and writing about my younger life. But I'm scared that somebody might find it and read it. And I don't, I don't, I don't know what took, came over me, but I said, are you scared about what somebody else might think or are you scared of how you will feel yourself? about writing it and he looked at me and it was one of you could see it was one of those moments for him where a penny dropped and he he was very brave because in front of everyone he said I think you're absolutely right I think I'm scared myself well my answer Mm. to that is don't be scared I mean you don't have to show it to anyone this is a piece of work for you in fact when I started my book Karen I had no intention of writing a book I decided to do a life review for myself Mm. and I didn't even tell anyone about it I thought this is just a little piece of work that I want to do for me and it was about halfway through the book that I, I started looking at it thinking, no, I want to share this with the world because I, I really do believe that this idea of doing a life review is a really important one that I think people should consider doing. So tell us more about the steps um, that you suggest in your book yep. for doing a, a review of your life. Okay. Well, um, Look, one of the reasons that I think also people avoid doing this is because it all feels a bit too hard and scary. And so I try to break it down into a number of very doable steps. And, you know, my 45-year career helping people change has taught me a lot about how to help people change and, and what sort of advice to be able to give. So the first thing I suggest is look at your life and identify between 8 and 12 eras. Now, what is an era? An era is whatever you want it to be. So I don't want to be too prescriptive here. An era could be your 20s. An era could be the time that you had purple hair or when you lived in the house by the sea or when you were in a relationship with Frankie or when you were at university. 
you know, it can be whatever is significant for you. And if, if people do nothing else than this, I, I think this is a really interesting exercise. Take a piece of paper and try to identify in basically chronological order what are the 8 to 12 eras of your life. Now, when you've done that, try and give each one a name. So it might be when I had pink hair or, you know, when I lived with Frank. So um, that's the first step. Then what you do is you take the first era and you basically write it up. So what happened in that time? Where were you? Who you're in love with? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? What happened? So that's basically the descriptive part of what I was talking about before. But then the second part of the the, the exercise is to unpack it, to analyse it, to dissect it of what happened during that era. And that really, Karen, is about asking questions Mm-hmm. And the questions are important because, as we know, the answers are only as good as the questions you ask. Mm. It's interesting because not too long ago, and I said uh, you you said you don't want to be too scriptive about how to do this, but I did an exercise with someone was talking about breaking your life in seven year slots, which is a really interesting. We did it while we walked and talked. And it was really an incredible way of looking at your life. well, what what was I like at seven? And then what was changed by 14? And then, yeah, yeah but that, that's much more scripted that's, than what that's you a little, suggest. Well, that, that reminds me of that BBC documentary, <laughs> Seven Up, which, tracks, which tracked a group of people every seven years. I don't know if you remember that. And, in fact, the, the last episode, they were all 63 around our age. And, you know, a couple of them have died. So, you know, one's <laughs> in jail or you know, whatever. And it's just fascinating to, to look at how they went. Look, you know, if look, if that works for you, that's fine. I personally prefer you to identify an era in what's significant for you because maybe there was a, a period, I don't, for example, in your early 20s when you were in a particular, you know, when you were in your first love affair. Now, that may have only lasted four years, for argument's sake, but it mm. was an absolutely critical era in your life because of the highs and the lows and the no, 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 no. Now, I would say, how does that fit into the seven-year plan? So I would prefer not to do that and just say, you do it based off. But what I am prescriptive about is not less than eight, because otherwise the eras are going to be too big, Mm, not more than 12, because then they're going to be too small. So between eight and 12. And when you've written these eras out, and so then analysing them. You mentioned questions. Can you dive into that one? Absolutely. So, look, some questions are, I guess, pretty obvious and you could use them for any era. So questions like, what did you learn during that period? Right. And and it's very interesting because I don't know whether you're aware, um, Prince Harry is actually writing a memoir and it's interesting, he's only in his late 30s. And apparently, I believe it's coming out of Christmas, apparently he's writing um, about what's happened in his life in order to identify what he can learn from that. So that's quite interesting. So what did you learn? Um, what went well? What didn't go well? What might you do? Might you have done differently if you mm-hmm. had your time over again? So they're, they're questions that really are kind of generic questions which can apply to any era. Now, other questions, um, I guess, are less obvious um, and might apply more to some eras than others. Let me give you an example. 
Um, so once again, I'll take an example from my own life because I put myself on the couch. So I had a very traumatic childhood. And when I wrote about my childhood, which was obviously the first era, I got in touch with a lot of the anger. Yeah, I guess anger is the best word to use. I mean, my father died when I just turned three. My mother, who was German and survived the Second World War, definitely had post-traumatic stress disorder, although in those days we didn't know about that. Um, she couldn't decide after my father died whether she wanted to stay in Australia or go back to Europe. And so we spent most of my childhood going backwards and forwards. So there was incredible instability. She was also very needy and was borderline inappropriate, probably actually just plain inappropriate physically with me and emotionally. On top of all of that, uh, around the age of 12 or 13, I realised I was gay. And this was the late 60s when it wasn't like it is now. It wasn't really no. very cool to be gay. So, you know, I didn't tell anyone about it. So on top of being, you know, an adolescent, I was grappling with all of this. So, you know, I had a lot of difficulty in my childhood, which I wrote about in the first era. And I realised that uh, all of these years, and I'm 67 now, I felt, I felt angry about it. You know, why me? Why did I have to go through that childhood? Why did my father have, Why couldn't somebody else's father have died? Now, one of the questions that I posed to myself, and this is kind of going back to the issue of well, what are some questions, is, is there another way of looking at your childhood that might make you feel differently about it? In other words, this is a question based on the idea of what's called narrative therapy, and that is that we all tell ourselves stories about our lives. Now, some stories are more useful, productive, helpful, and some stories are less. And clearly, I was telling myself a story that wasn't really productive or helpful because the story I told myself made me feel angry, a victim, annoyed, bitter. But when I posed this question, is there another way of looking at your childhood that might make you feel better? And I thought about it, I realised actually there is. And that is that that crazy childhood that I had with all the moving around and all the challenges taught me two really important life skills. One is resilience, which is the ability to bounce back from adversity. And the second one is adaptability, which is obviously the ability to cope with change. I have those two life skills in abundance because of that crazy childhood that I have. And when I now realise that, I now look back at that childhood and I think to myself, I'm glad I had it. As tricky and difficult and challenging as I had, it has made me the resilient and adaptable person that I am now in my adult life. And those two skills, resilience and adaptability, have served me incredibly well. So, so I was going to say, do you think this unpacking of those first years in your life and asking yourself those questions, uh, how could you change the narrative or, you know, can you can you put another spin on it? Do you think it's made you a better psychologist? Um, no, I think I was a pretty good psychologist anyway, but I, I think it's made me a better person. I mean, okay. I, I guess I'll wear the two different hats there. I, I think it's just made me fly off the handle a little bit less in my personal life and just not feel a victim and feel that sort of residual anger that I've been carrying all this time. I mean, some of your listeners, and in fact, when I realised this myself, I thought, why has it taken me so long to realise this? But, you know, there's a, there's a concept in psychology and that is it's about 
there, there is a time, there is a time when you're ready to receive a certain lesson. And I guess yeah. the time was now, it just wasn't earlier on. But it certainly made me a calmer, happier person. So, Peter, down the track, let's pick another era. In your, say, your 20s, what was <laughs> another era? Did you have pink hair? Oh, yeah, that would explain why I don't have any hair now. No, I did. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think I went through a pink stage. I went through a, I went through a bottle blonde stage, though. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm bald now, so you know that's a that's a long time ago, Karen. And look, okay, so so we're talking about, I guess, some of the less obvious questions that you might want to ask yourself as you're doing this era. So I guess you know if you're talking about your twenties, as I mentioned before, in your twenties, one of the big issues is you fall in love. Now, one of the questions, you know, and, and that may very well be an era that you write about, and I think one of the really interesting questions is why do you fall in love with the people you fall in love with? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for some people this may be a serial exercise where they keep falling in love with the wrong person. Why? Well, there's an interesting theory called Imago theory that was developed by an American psychologist called Harville Hendricks. And to to try and simplify it as much as I can, he said that the reason we fall in love with certain people, certain types of people, is because of some injury that happened back in our childhood or or our early adulthood. Something happened then that we were unable to control and it sets us up for looking for a particular type of person so that we can rectify that problem that happened in our childhood. Let me give you an example. There's a true true story of somebody who read the book who who told me about this insight that she had. And this, interestingly, is, is not a person prone to deep thought and deep insight. So this is a woman who is a year or two younger than me, so she's she's in her mid-60s. She um, had been married um, to the father of her children and they split up about just over 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And she was single for a few years. And then in her kind of, I think, what, early to mid-50s, she met this guy who she fell in love with. Lovely guy. Um, They got along really, really well. They travelled together. The sex was great. Um, They got along really well. But she had this recurring, nagging feeling with him because she wanted to buy a place with him. And he, for one reason or another, kept on putting it off. You know, his his father died, but the will hadn't come through and the money and the investment property here and there. There seemed to always be a reason. And this went on and on and on. And she she kept on feeling annoyed about the fact that he didn't want to, she thought, didn't want to buy a place with him. And I remember saying to her, well, you know, why was this an issue? Oh, because this was a real sign of commitment. And I said, well, you know, does it, do you really have to buy a place with somebody for them to show a commitment? In her mind, it was. Anyway, she nagged him and nagged him and nagged him about this idea of buying a house together, so much so that they ended up splitting up, which I think was very sad. Anyway, a year or two later, she read my book and she contacted me and she said, I just had the most amazing realisation. What? She said, when I was in my late teens, around 18 or 19, I was with my first love, this guy, and we were going to buy a house together. We had all these plans. We were going to buy a house. And then a year or two later, all of a sudden, boom, he met somebody else, fell in love and left her. Clearly a traumatic experience. Now, you don't have to be a psychologist to join the dots here. She fell in love with this guy much later in life 
because he represented this opportunity to rectify this problem that she'd had with the first, her very first, her big love. And that is this idea of I'm going to get him to buy the house to prove that he's committed. And when she realised this now, all these years later, you know, 40-plus years later, she realised that, in fact, that that was a very sort of negative, destructive thing and that she needed to let go of it. And interestingly, fairly recently, she's met a new guy and seems to be going well, and I asked her, you know, how's the thing about buying the house? She said, I'm just letting it go, letting go of all of that. I'm not thinking about it because it's a destructive uh, thing in this relationship. So the idea of why do you fall in love uh, and with somebody and how can that affect you even years and years and years later, I think, is a really interesting question. Mm, um, you've made me start to think about a few things as well. <laughs> so I'm going to have to read your book, Peter. It's like... Oh, you haven't yeah, read it? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. Well, and, well, can I just can I pause you there? That is music to my ears. It really is, um, Karen, because, you know, I wrote this book not to be famous or to make money or anything because I don't care about any of that. I've been there, done that. I've I've written this book precisely to do what you're describing, which is to trigger off thinking, to make people reflect on their lives, not just describe what happens but actually try to ask these hard questions because that's how you you really gain some insight and some understanding And, and that's what it's all about. I think asking yourself the questions is such a, a useful thing, but can you go through some of the benefits of actually doing sure. a life review? Sure. Well, well j- just to finish on the question, so in the book I have all sorts of different questions that ah. appeal, to, appeal to all different times in your life. I mean, you mentioned that woman who's involved in, in purpose. Uh, you know, one of the big questions that are particularly relevant to um uh midlife is have you found your purpose in life and i talk a lot about that but anyway i'll I'll answer your question which is what are the benefits look i think there are three main benefits of doing this exercise first of all there's making peace with your past and i guess my example of my childhood is you know illustrates that that you you know you can really go back to some of the traumas that have happened in earlier life look at them now in a different way, ask questions and make peace with them. A second benefit, which is really important, I guess my story about the, the woman with, the, <clears throat> with, the, with the, the boyfriend, it allows you to increase your understanding, your, your self-understanding, your awareness, your self-knowledge. And I think it was Socrates who said that, uh, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living, and I agree with him. So to examine yourself allows you to understand yourself. I mean, I'll give you a quick example there. I realised something about myself doing this exercise. I joined a number of dots that I'd never quite connected before, and I realised that actually I'm a pessimist. And uh, I'm quite a sunny person generally, and people view me as quite an optimist, but I realised I have this kind of streak of pessimism, and I realised it when I connected a few things. For example... I had a major relationship breakdown when I was 37 and I thought I would never meet anyone again. I mean, how ridiculous. I was 37. But I realised this was an example of pessimism, a particular type of pessimism called inaccurate forecasting. I'm also a shocking hypochondriac. You know, I always, you know, have a pain somewhere. Oh, you know, it must be a, you know, cancer or something. 
I look at the way I invest money too also, and I'm very risk adverse. So, you know, when I joined those dots between those different things about me, each of which I kind of knew, I realised this pessimism. Now, we know from research that increasing your self-understanding leads to a much more successful life. The third benefit, though, apart from making peace with your past, increasing your understanding, is that doing this exercise allows you to think about the future, um, the years you have left, and thinking about what you want to change. And, you know, I mean, that can be obvious stuff like, well, I want to travel or I want to take up golf or I want to lose weight or, you know, those sort of things. But for me, um, one of the major things about the future, and I guess, you know, talking on a podcast called Aging Fearlessly, my comments can't be more appropriate. To be really honest with you, I was scared about getting older. I mean, turning 60 for me was horrific. And I realise now I've got this resilience and this adaptability that I talked about before, and I will be able to cope with whatever life throws up at me. Mm. And that has made such a difference to the way I feel about being 67 and facing the fact that I'm ageing. So it might seem like common sense and your listeners might be thinking, gee, you know, he's a psychologist and he's just worked this out. I'm afraid that's the case. Well, I'm afraid it's probably the case with a lot of us. And as I sit here listening to you, I I actually love what you're saying because I, I am going to do a life review. And, and I think in part I've started. However, I'm nowhere near complete. What, 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 what have you done so far? I guess, Peter, for me, I've been looking at the last five or six years in my life that have changed drastically. You talk about life and the way we've lived. I lived with a generalised anxiety disorder for many, many decades. Yeah. And being a psychologist, you would know just how hard that is. It's a very painful, painful way to live your life. Yeah. And as I've grown and I I wrote my book a few years ago and Ageing Fearlessly, it's made me look at my life. And I I think you, you touched on before I, look, I wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't gone through the anxiety process. Yes, that's right. I'm much more understanding of people. Yes. I'm much more caring. Yes. But I'm very driven. I feel like I've got lost time to make up for because I look at anxiety as a thief. Yeah. It robs you of so many years. But, you know, I look at now why I have a podcast, why I'm driven to do a live show. What am I? It's it's a giving back, but I'm I'm loving it because I'm learning. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of learnings I'm trying to unpack as to why I'm so driven to do these things. Yeah. Well, look, that that's marvelous, and, and you know, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's 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 hard to to talk about one's weaknesses and one's you know, travels through life honestly, you know, in a public situation. Um, but I, I think it's important not just for us to to say to the world, hey, this is who we are. Um, mm. But it's also important for other people to, you know, legitimise and I guess make more normal talking about things that one might be, you know, more prone to wanting to hide or, or, or be discreet yeah. about. Um, all I would say to you is, yes, I, I would encourage you to continue this process, but go right back to the beginning. Mm. You know, you talk about only writing about the last five or six years, which is clearly 
a terrific era in your life, the podcast era, the book era, we might call it. But I would encourage you to go right back um, mm. Start by identifying, you know, as I said before, the eight to 12 eras of your life, starting right back at the beginning. Mm. Um, and then um, go one by one. So just do, do one step at a time. Start with era number one, write up what happened, and then try to make sense of it. And um, in my book, uh, obviously, I go into a lot of detail, you know, and it's the questioning that's the really the, the, the trick here, you know, it's it's knowing what questions to ask. And what I tried to do in the book is um, come up with questions that, were ba- that weren't just like out of nowhere, but that were based on good, useful sci- psychological theories or research. So I mentioned, mm-hmm. um, you know, the work by Harvel Hendricks. I mentioned narrative therapy. You know, I talked a little bit about the idea of purpose and I've got questions about knowing whether or not you've really identified your purpose. Um, you know, how do you feel about getting older? There are all mm. sorts of questions, you know, are you an introvert or an extrovert? There's a really important question to ask and to know about yourself. So I would encourage you to go right back to the beginning. And, well, first of all, I would encourage you to read my book. If I'm, I'm, I'm going to. Say um, look, as I said before, I've been thrilled, genuinely thrilled by the reaction. I mean, I just got an email yesterday from a, a woman who attended a book event that I did in Brisbane a couple of months ago. And uh, she said, I've written your book and it's made me think so much and go right back to my childhood and look at that and unpack all of that and, make, and, and look at how that's affected my adult life, how now it's affected my older adult life. Uh, you know, it's just music to my ears when I hear that because, as I keep saying, that's exactly why I read it. I wrote it. Yeah, I think it's amazing um, that you're doing that. You have done this for people, and the fact that you've got questions there, they don't even have to play guesswork on what am I going to ask myself. Yeah, that's it's right. It's all there for them. But you're very open about the personal aspects in your life, especially the drugs and and sex. <laughs> and there's a passage where you describe your first LSD trip. I've never done that actually, but was it scary to? to open up to this, you know, publicly? Well, you know, I grew up in the 70s, so um, uh, as, you know, so we, you know, we did it all back then. There were, you know, it was pre-AIDS um, and, uh, you know, we, we did all the drug, sex and rock and roll, or maybe not so much of the rock and roll. <laughs> um, look, as I said before, uh, Karen, when I started this exercise, I, I wasn't intending to write a book. This was an exercise for me. So obviously I included all of the juicy details because I wanted to write about them and I, I wanted to see kind of where that led. Um, when I started thinking about publishing it, I thought, oh, gee, you know, maybe I better go back and, you know, remove a few sections or uh, edit them. And I thought long and hard about it. To be honest, I also thought, is writing this honestly about my background going to reduce my sort of credibility as a psychologist? Are people going to read this and think, well, this guy's crazy and he's a psychologist? I I read a a very interesting interview that helped me with this issue about the American comedian Joan Rivers, who some of you may know. She died a few years ago. They did an interview about, uh, sort of, sorry, a documentary about her uh, a few years before she died called A Piece of Work, and it was pretty, pretty in your face. And I read an interview with her a couple of years later, and the interviewer said, 
it, it was pretty in your face. You were pretty open about everything. You know, why did you reveal so much of yourself? And her answer was, look, if you're going to do something like this, you've got to be open. You've got to let it all hang out. Otherwise, don't do it. Mm. And I thought that was really good advice. And I thought, no, if I'm going to be thinking and requesting and encouraging other people to be honest with themselves, I've got to be honest with myself. And when I when I was taking the book around to get published, there was one publisher who didn't end up publishing the book, but she gave me some feedback on it. And she said that she found it very authentic. And it's funny, I hadn't, you know, tried to be authentic, but that was really nice feedback to get that she felt it, it had an authenticity about it. I mean, I'm not pulling any punches. I, I write about my life very, very honestly because um, I think if you're going to do this sort of thing, you might as well. I think that the honesty and the authenticity, it allows people to really understand you. And by not hiding anything in your life in terms of, you know, the drugs, the sex and, and your life in personal um, detail, it allows people to really connect because yeah. so many people hide things yeah. in their life and we just think they're wonderful. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, what's the point of hiding it? Because we're human. I absolutely agree with you, and particularly a lot of the psychologists who write self-help books who include little bits about themselves. You know, it's often very glossy, and I try very hard in this book to be really brutally honest about myself, you know, not because I particularly want to, you know, I don't know, brag about anything, but, you know, this is the life that I've led with its ups and downs, and they haven't just been down times. I've had a lot of fantastic times. I've had a you know, overall, I've had a, a stupendously wonderful life. I'm in a wonderful relationship. I've had a great career that continues. So, you know, I've, I've had a lot of good times. But one of the really interesting effects of writing this book for me, it's a really strange thing which I wasn't anticipating, and that is I feel known. Now, what I mean by that is not like well-known as in the sense of famous. I just feel that I've put myself out there and Anyone who reads this book really knows me, honestly. Mm. There's no more facades. There's no more pretense. This is who I am. And there's something liberating about just being able to be known. So, Peter, from what you've been saying today, I just want to bring up something back in the 70s when I struggled with anxiety. My yeah. mother used to, I was a teacher then, and my mother used to say, Never tell anyone that you struggle with anxiety like this because you'll never get a job. Yeah. And you live with it thinking that you're the only person in the world that's going insane yeah. with anxiety. And yeah. it, it becomes scarier yeah. because there's no connection to other people because everybody's hiding it. Yeah. And, and going back to teaching, when I worked for the education department, you weren't allowed to write down as sick leave that you had a migraine. Yeah. I mean, like, for, God, for goodness sake, you know, we're human. People get migraines. But just because you're a teacher, you're not allowed to write it on your sick leave form. People said, don't write that. Yeah, you were in the closet. Oh, I was. You know, I didn't understand that other people around me were struggling with anxiety. Yep. Well, and now, you know, people tell you a story and you go, really? I was in the same place. I thought I was the only one. I put on the biggest smile and I laughed a lot, but it was all fake. 
Oh, look, tell me about it, Karen. I mean, you know, when I realised I was gay at the age of 12 or 13, there was no gay telephone switchboard service. There was no Pride Week. Apparently, a third of young people come out on Facebook or on Instagram, you know, nowadays. When I was 12, there was nothing. There was no sex education. There was no school counsellor. There was nothing. But all I knew was this is not a good idea to tell anybody about this. And so I grappled for several years before I took up the courage to tell one person that I thought I might be gay. And I can't tell you how anxious I was about that. And, you know, even professionally in my 20s and 30s and 40s, I never revealed that I was gay uh, to anyone professionally. I mean, I was on um, Good Morning Australia with Bert Newton for seven years back in the 90s. I was the resident psychologist. We, we used to get letters. I remember there was a letter from a parent who had a gay child and, you know, just wasn't quite sure how to handle the whole thing. Now, this would have been a beautiful opportunity for me to say, well, you know, I'm gay, Bert, blah, 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 blah. I didn't, I didn't say anything because I felt, rightly or wrongly, that it would compromise my professional credibility. We lock ourselves in closets either because of, you know, our sexuality or our personalities or conditions that we have, like anxiety, as in your case. And this is why writing about this is incredibly liberating because you're kind of getting it out there and you're saying to the world, this is who I am. Love me or leave me. Going right back to what we said at the beginning of the interview, there's something wonderful wonderfully liberating about being 60 plus you can say this this is who I am you know I'm comfortable with it if you are you are if you're not you're not and that's absolutely fine and it's wonderful well you mentioned that you worked with Bert so what was it like working with Bert for seven years Yes, well, of course, many 60-plus people would remember Bert, um, who passed away a few years ago. Look, I always used to get two questions about Bert from people who knew that I was on that show. They used to say, is he gay? And the other question is, what was that thing? What's that thing on top of his head? (laughs) (laughs) And the answer to both of those questions, I don't know. Um, But, look, it was wonderful. I mean, at the time, Karen, I had uh, I was making corporate uh, education videos and I used to be the on-screen presenter, you know, in all the videos. Um, and so, you know, I'd be in a studio regularly uh, delivering points down the barrel of a camera reading off an auto cue. And so it was very inspiring for me to watch Bert doing that. I mean, this was like the apprentice watching the master. I mean, he... Yeah had been in television since the very early days in the 50s. And he had an ability to look at the camera, you know, just tilt his head, be able to give that little bit of a smile, deliver the lines that were, you know, typed out there that, of course, people at home can't see. And he'd be able to read these out. And at home, you thought he was talking to you. And I know how difficult that is. It is extraordinarily challenging. And it was was inspiring watching it. it. It was great. Well, he had a very long career and I'm sure it was a wonderful time to share and to be his apprentice. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Peter, honestly, today's been a great chat. I mm. have really enjoyed it. I'm sure the people that listen to the podcast will take something away from this. And I'm definitely going to do a life review and right. put myself on the couch. <laughs> right. Will you, will, you, will you promise and let me know, and it, you don't have to go into detail, promise and let me know how you went when you've done it. 
Oh, absolutely. So today my guest is Peter Quarry. He's the author of If I Were You, and Peter puts himself on the couch in his book and asks himself some questions that really are life-changing. So, Peter, thank you so much for today. It's been an inspiration to me and just a wonderful opportunity to meet you. Absolute pleasure. Look, uh, as I said before, I think, you know, anyone can do this. Um, and I really encourage you, don't be scared. If you're not sure of how to do it, okay, you can read my book. Or you can listen to the podcast again. Have a go. Uh, give it a try. It is really, a, 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 as you say, Karen, a life-changing experience. So where can people get your book, Peter? Oh, look, it's it's for sale in many bookshops around uh, around the country. Um, you can certainly get it online if you just Google Peter Quarry. If I were you, you know, it's a Dimmix and Amazon and all, all of the major online um, retailers. Well, Peter, let's chat again sometime. And I hope to meet in person one of these days. And, uh, yeah, cheerio. And and all the best to you, and it's been lovely speaking with you. Thanks very much, Karen. Great to speak to you. Thanks. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, ageing is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in your eye. It's not all nine to five. It's a wonderful life. Let's go and climb mountains Oceans wide Live out our dreams Just you and me Let your heart be alive There's no time to waste Gotta go get the most out of time Don't be afraid Like this treasure that you've got to Let your heart be alive